<coughs> let's have a word of prayer together, so I invite you to bow your heads with me, and let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this uh, wonderful opportunity we have to come together on the Sabbath day and to sing praises to your name and to study from your holy word. We humbly ask this morning, Father, for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us here. We've gathered together in the name of Jesus, and we claim the promises that where two or three are gathered, he will be in the midst. We pray for the Spirit to bring us discernment and give us a love for the truth. And Father, we also lift up before you those on our prayer list. We think of um, our parents, <laughs> and uh, they are getting up there in age. We want to be a good witness to them and, and to serve them as Jesus was a servant. We pray that you be very near to them. And uh, be with those who are sick and ill especially. Uh, may we uh, be able to witness to them and, and help them and uh, be a servant to their needs as well. And Father, we pray that you will forgive us our sins. We ask that you will forgive us as we claim the blood of Jesus who died there on the cross for us. And we thank you so much for that. And Lord, I pray that you give me the words to speak this morning. We live in some dire times, and uh, many are asleep. So I pray that, that we may have an understanding of what you have, have uh, brought to us today, and may we share it with those around us so uh, those who can be saved will be saved. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I'm going to be talking about this morning about the signs of Christ's coming. Uh, what I've done and why we're meeting here especially is we, we want to come into an area where there is an interest and that's what we're doing and, and we're going to be talking about prophecy and end time events through lecture and Bible study. Um, this study this, this afternoon is a one of the most important studies of prophecy we probably will get into until we get into Revelation. This afternoon we're going to look at the little horn that we find in Daniel 7. And we're going to get uh, what the Bible has to tell us and history has to tell us about that. But right now we, we looked at and when we started this journey together we were looking at uh, some Bible principles of study, in particular prophetical interpretation the method to use in studying Bible prophecy, and we got a little bit of history, didn't we? And uh, we found that uh, uh, Jesus is going to be coming back, but there are varying ideas of how that's going to happen. <coughs> right now we want to take a look at what are these signs, you know? We're going to begin our study in the book of Matthew, chapter 24. And we'll, we'll bounce around from 24 chapter 24 Matthew and look in uh, Luke chapter 21 a few times as well. But when you get into Matthew 24, something was different here as Jesus and the disciples gathered together uh, upon the Mount of Olives. And just moments before he had left the temple for the last time, essentially. Uh, and in utter shock, the disciples, to the disciples, Jesus had pronounced uh, woes against the Pharisees. That's in chapter 23. And he ended by saying the words, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And that shocked the disciples. And 
And now the timing of this, we are now in the midst of the prophetic week of Daniel chapter 9. That was our first study, if you recall, in uh, the afternoon, the first time we met. Is Jesus of Nazareth the Messiah? We took a look at the 70-week prophecy, didn't we? And so we're in the midst of this prophetic week. And so far as heaven was concerned, the value of sacrifice and oblation was about to cease forever because of what Jesus was going to do. Now the words of Jesus, they brought fear though into the disciples' hearts and they were plagued by the thought of the temple being destroyed. Could it be that the pride of the the Jews would be left in ruins? you imagine what's going through their mind? And as they passed with Him out of the temple, they called His attention back to the temple and they pointed to the strength and the beauty of of the temple. The stones of the temple, you see, were made of the purest marble. It was a perfect whiteness. And, And some of these stones were of enormous size. It was fit together so perfectly that from a distance it looked like just one big rock. Beautiful. How those mighty walls could be uh, overthrown. The disciples, they just couldn't comprehend that. Now we've got to remember too that the, the Jews had built up this idol, which was the temple. That was where God dwelt. So they looked at the temple virtually as God Himself. In fact, they had laws that if you spoke against the temple, don't you remember in the Gospels? Here they thought Jesus speaking against the temple and there were these laws that the, the Sadducees and the more the Pharisees but the whole Sanhedrin had made through time, these rabbis, that uh, they would take people out and stone them if you spoke against the temple because that was speaking against God. See, And so when Jesus said these things, your house is left unto you desolate, the disciples, they're, they're just stunned. They didn't understand it. And uh, here, can you hear Jesus saying, he he says to them, you point to these walls as if they're indestructible. But listen to my words. And in verse 2, Matthew 24, he says, there shall not be left, what? One stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, these words, I believe, were still ringing in in their ears when Jesus was alone and the disciples came to Him as He sat upon the Mount of Olives. And in verse 3 they said, Tell us, when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the world? And again, I'll tell you, they came to Him privately because it would be considered treason to talk about those things publicly. And three distinct questions were asked of the Lord right there. And they posed their questions with the, the messianic messages of the Old Testament prophets in their minds. Because remember last time we were together, one of the things that, that convinced the disciples that Jesus was the Son of God was these Old Testament prophecies. It, you know, Him going around and doing the miracles, that of course, grabs attention, doesn't it? But it was the fulfillment of these prophecies that really made an impact on them. And so they're back 
going through the prophecies again and they're asking him to clarify his statements in, uh, in essence. Teach us these things. When's this going to happen? <clears throat> they didn't fully understand God's uh, uh, promises. And so here they are, they're asking Jesus about it. And Jesus was saying, look, there, there are necessary conditions for God to fulfill promises. You know, Christians still don't get that today. A lot of them I run into. That's why there's such the big push by uh, uh, most of the evangelicals, most of Christendom, that we got to protect Israel, literal Israel. We got to, the Jews are God's chosen people. Have you ever heard that? They're God's chosen people. Well, we studied that before and we found, no, that's not really the case, is it? And so, they, they really still don't get that. But Jesus blended in His answer events leading up to the end of the Jewish nation as God's chosen people and, and also the end of the world. And the lines cannot always be sharply contrasted. There's a blending there. See, this is one of the instances when we talk about prophecy where Jesus was talking about the fulfillment of you know, the destruction of Jerusalem also with elements of the end of the world. Okay? And a lot of what Jesus shared in the future applied, though particularly, to events soon to take place with respect to the Jewish nation, the city of Jerusalem, uh, and the temple. However, it's also given for the benefit of those of us who live now at the end of earth's history which we're going to find out when we get more into the signs of the times. Let me share this with you. It's from the book Desire of Ages, page 628. Jesus did not answer His disciples by t- taking up separately the destruction of Jerusalem and the great day of His coming. He mingled the description of these two events. Had He opened to His disciple future events as He beheld them, they would have been unable to endure the sight. So, they were so entrenched still with traditions that they were taught by the rabbis that if Jesus opened up all of it to their view, it would have destroyed their their faith completely. And I like that about God in that He knows us so intimately. He knows what's best for us. God wants to strengthen our faith, not destroy our faith. Isn't that right? And so here we see it. Uh, with uh, Jesus and what he was sharing with the disciples. It says, In mercy to them, he blended the description of the two great crises, leaving the disciples, and here's a key point, leaving the disciples to study out the meaning for themselves. Have you ever been, uh, at least uh, let me share this with my, in my experience. It, it, it almost always seems much better if you're sharing something with someone if they come to the conclusion themselves than if you tell them. Have you had that experience? I guess maybe that's just our makeup as human beings. If we think, oh, I figured that out, it makes more of an impact, doesn't it? You know, Especially with teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with teenagers, yeah. And, it's, and the, it's just true. It's, I think it's true for everybody. We must study out the meaning of Christ's word for ourselves. So anything you hear me talking about, take it to the Lord and study it out for yourself because you yourself will have to answer to the Lord for it. You don't have to answer to me for it, right? 
And that's extremely important to understand for what were the words, the first words that Jesus said in response to these questions. Look at verse 4 in Matthew 24. Take heed that what? No man deceive you, he said. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. That's a scary thought to me. I mean, I can understand that many people will come in the name of Christ, but he says, and they shall deceive many. And that's kind of scary to me, and always has been. But Jesus is saying, don't let a man here, don't let these men deceive you. In the days of the apostles, you go back and you you read some of the, the... historical writings, you know, Josephus and some of these guys, there were many false messiahs. Many. (coughs) Almost too many to number. I mean, there was a sect that believed that Barabbas was the messiah. Well, that's why a lot of them were saying, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. You know? I encourage you, you know, read some of the, the writings of Josephus if you get a chance. And some others as well. I'll probably mention them here in a few minutes. Um, Back to Desire of Ages, page 628. She says, Many false messiahs will appear, claiming to work miracles, and declaring that the time of the deliverance of the Jewish nation has come. These will mislead many. Christ's words were fulfilled. Between his death and the siege of Jerusalem, many false messiahs appeared. But this warning was given also to those who live in this age of the world. It wasn't just for them. The same deceptions practiced prior to the destruction of Jerusalem have been practiced through the ages and will be practiced again. Doesn't Satan use people, false Christ, false prophets, to deceive people? Absolutely. Jesus continued, Matthew 24, verse 6, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I mean, he's speaking, remember, he's blending, he's blending the, this prophecy. It's not only talking about our age, but it was talking about what? The destruction of Jerusalem too, wasn't it? Prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, I mean, there were emperors that were murdered. Has that ever ceased? Oh, friends, I'll tell you, I think we will be stunned when we look at the history of the world when it's all said and done of what's going on that we have no idea. It's incredible, the intrigue. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you look at... uh, We've got the Pope coming to the United States this month. You just start tracing back some of the Popes. There are Popes that were murdered poisoned so that other popes could be put into office. (laughs) And don't think that the church hasn't seen some of that as well. Okay? There were wars and rumors of wars very often during that time span with the disciples. And Jesus is saying that they're not to be surprised or alarmed before the destruction of Jerusalem when wars broke out. That doesn't mean that Jesus is coming right then. See, this is what he's telling them. There would be wars before the fall of Jerusalem, but they would not yet indicate his coming. 
All these things must come to pass, Jesus said, but the end of the Jewish nation is a nation. Their penalty, remember, that 70-week prophecy allotted to them, is not yet, he said. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the end of sorrows, the beginning of sorrows. And that's a key point to understand as well. This is why you know, this particular Matthew 24, he's blending you know, from, from the, the Jews as a nation being destroyed to the end of the world before Christ comes, before his return. So he's mingling the description of these events and he's doing it for the disciples. So Jesus said, as the rabbis see these signs, they'll declare them to be God's judgment upon nations that have been holding His chosen people in bondage. That's what the rabbis did. I mean, even when they were under siege, the rabbis were saying, God is going to deliver us. But God didn't deliver them. They didn't understand the signs of the times, did they? And so Jesus is saying, don't be deceived by these leaders for the signs are the beginning of God's judgments. And the signs that they represent as tokens of their release from bondage are actually signs of their destruction. And history is going to be repeated. And as the wars and rumors of wars of the apostolic times (laughs) foreshadowed the end of the Jewish nation, So all this international turmoil that we see going on uh, and strife of our day foreshadow the end of the world. It's not just going to go on forever. Praise God. Interestingly, Jewish and Roman writers, they describe the period from 31 A.D. to 70 A.D. Remember that's 31 here. Jesus was what? Midst of the week? Right to 70 A.D. as a time of tremendous calamities. It's pretty remarkable. So these words of Christ were literally fulfilled in the events prior to the fall of Jerusalem there in 70 A.D. The predictions concerning uh, the famines and pestilences and earthquakes there in, in verse 7 also refer primarily probably to that same period, though we see it going to be repeated Uh, with much stronger evidence in our time. Um, Just historically speaking, a particularly severe famine in Judea about 44 A.D. I mean, is what is alluded to in Acts 11 verse 28. If you you go and look at that, that, that's what's, you know, history backs that up. See? History tells of four major famines during the reign of Claudius Caesar, and he reigned between 41 to 54 AD. Uh, There was a series of major earthquakes between 31 and 70 AD. The worst were in Crete. Um, That was about 46 or 47 AD. Um, Rome had one in 51 AD, a major earthquake. Phrygia in 60, Campania in 63 I mean, the historian Tacitus, he, he speaks of severe hurricanes and, and storms in the year 65 A.D. Now, this is all before 70 A.D., before the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And so Jesus specifically warned the early Christians not to consider all that political strife, the famines, the pestilences, and earthquakes of that day as signs of the end of the world because they had to fulfill the destruction of Jerusalem that he prophesied about. And that, you know, that is what happened at the, the end of the 490 year, the 70 week prophecy. They were paying the dues, you know, the results of their disobedience. And again, we're going to see history repeat itself. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Isn't that interesting? All this the Christians suffered. Fathers and mothers betrayed their, their children. Children betrayed their parents. Uh, friends delivered their friends up to the Sanhedrin. The, the persecutors such as Saul. You remember Saul? He carried out these evil plans. They stoned Stephen, remember? Killed James. Other Christians. So what Jesus was telling them came to pass, didn't it? Desire of Ages, page 630. Through His servants, God gave the Jewish people a last opportunity to repent. He manifested Himself through His witnesses in their arrest, in their trial, and in their imprisonment. Yet their judges pronounced on them the death sentence. They were men of whom the world was not worthy. And by killing them, the Jews crucified afresh the Son of God. So it will be again. Because it's the same Spirit, isn't it? We have the Spirit of Christ on this planet. We have the Spirit of Antichrist. And until He's destroyed, it's going to be around. The authorities will make laws to restrict religious liberty. Really? Do you see some of these things being laid out in our country? Who's being attacked today? There's been a paradigm shift, or it's going on, isn't there? Christians are being, you know, uh, persecuted, and it'll just build and build. Pendulum's going to swing that other way very, very far. We'll see it here pretty soon, I believe. She says they will assume the right that is God's alone. They will think they can force the conscience which God alone should control. (coughs) So Christ gave His disciples a sign of the destruction to come on Jerusalem and He told them how to escape. Now if you go to Luke 21, Luke chapter 21 and verse 20, Jesus said, When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. And at that time, uh, the symbols of pagan Rome were set up within the temple area. And so you go on to the next, you know, verse 21. It says, Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, he said, that all things which are written, what? May be fulfilled. This warning was given 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. (laughs) Isn't that right, Russ? 
40 years. So they had a a good amount of time to consider the words of Christ, didn't they? In October of 66 AD, Cestius began to besiege Jerusalem. And even to this day, it's a mystery as to why he suddenly withdrew from the siege. And then Christians fled, believing that that was the sign that Christ was talking about. He gave time for the New, the New Testament to be written too during that time. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. And three and a half years later, Titus laid siege to the city. He overwhelmed it in 70 AD. And during the five months of that siege, 1.1 million, it's an estimate, 1.1 million Jews perished. 97,000 were taken captive. The Christians, though, they obeyed the sign given by Christ and not one Christian perished in the fall of Jerusalem. And their place of retreat was a little you know, town, a little city out in the foothills east of the Jordan River, about 17 miles, 18 miles or so south of the Sea of Galilee. It was called Pella. That's where they fled to. And according to Josephus, the historian Josephus, Titus, he was the commander of the Roman armies, he confessed that neither his armies nor his siege engines could have been successful in breaching the walls of Jerusalem unless God himself had so willed it. In fact, their stubborn defense against the Romans there infuriated the Roman soldiers so much that when they finally entered, their desire for revenge knew no bounds. Blood flowed from the temple, especially out through the streets. That's a lot of blood. (coughs) But from the destruction of Jerusalem, Christ moved quickly on to the greater event that he's really talking about as well, and that's the return of Jesus in majesty and glory. And between these two events, there lay open to Christ's view long centuries of darkness. If you look at the big picture here, centuries for His church um, marked with blood and, and tears, persecution, agony. And upon these scenes, His disciples, they, they wouldn't be able to look at it. And Jesus passed them. That's why He was really pretty brief about it. He didn't want to just completely destroy their faith. Matthew 24, let's go back to that. Verse 21. Verse 21. Then shall be great tribulation, such as what was not since the beginning of the world to this time, known nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. That's a very amazing statement right there. Unless those days should be shortened, unless God shows some mercy, no one would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Because of God's love for His people, they will be shortened. It's remarkable, isn't it? The early persecutions against Christians were waged by pagan Rome. 
for nearly 300 years, the church was persecuted. Christians being given to wild beasts, smeared with pitch, uh, lashed to poles to serve as torches for the, the arena, martyred in other ways till they estimated three million perished. Three million. We think of World War II, six million Jews. There were m- more people. I've, I've read, you know, 15 million altogether, but six million were Jews. There are different estimates. But what about the persecution against the Christians? The Dark Ages, there's up to 50 million. If you have the stomach for it, get Fox's Book of Martyrs and do some reading in it. It would tell you how evil Satan and his minions are. Invent ways. In fact, you're seeing a modern day persecution in the Middle East by this ISIS group. They are inventing ways to kill Christians that I think some of the persecutors back in in the Middle Ages would probably shudder or rejoice with them just the same. But this was followed by more terrible uh, persecutions um, during the time of the papal supremacy. And that extended from 538 to 1798 and exacted a toll of, like I said, well, I've seen 50 million and I've seen upwards of 100 million people. That's a lot. Of course, that's 1,260 years too. And had God, God's hand not been stretched out to preserve His people, I think all would have perished. But what do we read? But for the elect's sake, He said, those days shall be shortened. And now we come to our Lord speaking of His second coming. And He gives warning of dangers that precede His second advent to the world. Matthew 24, verse 23. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, what's He say? Believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. If it was possible to deceive even the most pious of person who follows Jesus, that's how powerful these delusions and signs and wonders are going to be. Verse 25, Behold, I have told you before, wherefore if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Even today, false Christs and and false prophets are showing signs and wonders to seduce God's people. And we must take heed that no man deceives us. Just do a search on the internet sometime if you're just messing around. and, And you'll find all kinds of individuals... I'm telling you, that claim to be the Savior, that claim to be Jesus. It's remarkable. Several years ago, I remember I received emails from people telling me that they were Jesus or that they were Michael the Archangel. But when I took them to Matthew 24 and the, and the prophecies concerning Jesus and what he was talking about, well, the correspondence ended. 
there are such false prophets as, you know, Benny Hinn. He's a false prophet. Rod Parsley. I'll even say Joel Osteen is one of the bigger false prophets, but people will look at me strangely. He doesn't go by what the Bible says. And these people, they fill the airwaves with error, leading people to destruction, thinking they're on a path to heaven, but they're not on a path to heaven. They're on a pathway to receive the mark of the beast, thinking they're on their way to receiving the seal of God. That's how powerful the deception is. Perhaps the most well-known false Christ on the planet is the one found in Rome, and he's coming over here this month. Pope Innocent III wrote this. It's quoted from an article in the Catholic National, as a newspaper, July 1895. He said, The Pope is not simply a man, but rather God on earth. That's remarkable, isn't it? He also wrote, the Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. I've, I've seen some commentators, they, they say, well, of course, the Pope's not God. Well, of course, these are the Popes themselves saying it. <laughs> We're not st- stupid and ignorant people, are we? Of course, they think we are. You're not smart enough to read the Bible for yourself, didn't you know that? Pope Leo XIII, he stated in his encyclical letter, June 20, 1894, he said, We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Now, this isn't a joke. They're very serious. They believe this. Our only safeguard against deception, my friends, is the Word of God. That's it. The Bible. Paul says we must prove all all things, hold fast that which is good. And what's Isaiah 20 say? To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, there is no light in them. I take God's word. When he says there's no light in them, I believe there's no light in them. That means no truth in them. Take heed that no man deceive you, friends. The Savior gives signs of His coming, and more than this, He fixes the time when the first of these signs shall appear. Remember, we're we're to use the historicist method, right? The prophetical interpretation. That's the biblical method. So, we look into history to see if the event has taken place, then we fix that prophecy to it as being fulfilled, right? It's, It's not somewhere out in the future, if it's been fulfilled. And history declares that it's been fulfilled. Of course, I can go on and on about that. Let's go back to Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus said that at the end of the great papal persecution, 
which was coming to, to an end before the deadly wound that was inflicted in 1798. It was coming to an end. They were still in power, but it was coming to an end. He said that the sun should be darkened and the moon should not give her light. And next, the stars should fall from heaven. Well, that was fulfilled. Do you know that? This is from the Connecticut Historical Collections, page 403. It says, The 19th of May, 1780, was a remarkable dark day. Candles were lighted in many houses. The birds were silent and disappeared, and the fowls retired to roost. A very general opinion prevailed that the Day of Judgment was at hand. I've read accounts where, you know, have you ever been in in any uh, uh, caves? Have you ever gone to like Marengo Cave or any caves in Kentucky or any place like that. We, we went into, was it Marengo? We went into a few years ago. We had the kids with us. And, and they take you down in there, and then they'll turn off all the lights. You, you can't see nothing. It was kind of funny, though, because some of the kids had, um, like, glow-in-the-dark Light up tennis shoes. And you just see a pair of shoes sitting over there. That's all you can see. Is that dark? That's how dark this day was. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, we talked about this before, you know, from noon to three, uh, history declares there was an eclipse event at that time. Um, But it was so dark that people crawled back to Jerusalem. They couldn't see in front of them. So they were down on their hands and knees crawling, hoping they'd make it back to the city. That's how dark this day was, May 19th, 1780. This is from the Pennsylvania Evening Post. Same time frame. (laughs) There was an appearance of midnight at noonday. And in the evening, although the moon was just past full, perhaps it was never darker since the children of Israel left the house of bondage. In connection with this extraordinary phenomenon, the moon was reported to appear red. This is history. The American Journal of Science and Arts. There was this uh, Professor Olmsted of Yale. He was a, a, a very famous astronomer and, and uh, meteorologist at that time. He said, The morning of November 13, 1833 was rendered memorable by an exhibition of the phenomenon called shooting stars, which was probably more extensive and magnificent than any similar one hitherto recorded. Probably no celestial phenomenon has ever occurred in this country since its first settlement, which was, for, which was viewed with so much admiration and delight by one class of spectators or with so much astonishment and fear by another class. <laughs> because they thought that it was... the Day of Judgment was upon them. And I've read where these shooting stars numbered around 3,000 an hour, they estimated. Now most students of prophecy are aware of these events, but what about the other signs Jesus talked about? Matthew 24, verse 32, Jesus says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree, when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves. Ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. So he's telling us, we need to pay attention to the signs of the times. And signs are all around us. Signs, signs, everywhere signs. That's why I called it this. 
Are we seeing the signs? And if you aren't seeing any of the signs, your head's got to be in the sand, I think, because they are all around. Let's go to one here in James. James gives us another sign of the soon coming of Jesus. James chapter 5. Yeah, let me move along here. James 5, verse 1, he says, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rest of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just. Is any of this jumping out at you? Have you seen any of this today? And he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. This is a tremendous warning by James. You know, I read an article that said, and, and this is plays right into what James is telling us here. He's, this article described how every big corporate company today virtually has two different sets of books in their counting. You know, the reports, their profits and their losses. They have a set of books that they show the IRS and then they have a set of books that they show their shareholders. We live, friends, in a, a crooked and perverse generation. I'll tell you that. The Huffington Post reports that out of 534 members of Congress, 268 have an average net worth of more than $1 million. How is it possible that these people get wealthy after arriving in Washington, D.C.? No, it's not our taxes. They live under different laws than the rest of us. Did you know that? Do you know they live under different laws? I mean, if you wonder why your representative doesn't vote for or against certain bills that regulate this or, or that should uh, regulate that, you should make yourself aware that Congress is exempt from insider trading laws and most laws concerning fraud. They have exempted themselves. So we will be sent to prison for this, but they're not under those laws. When the rest of the world has to... Give me an example. When the rest of the world has to wait for the stock market exchange to open, they can trade 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Did you know that? Members of the various banking committees can trade bank stocks all day. Members of the defense committees can trade defense stocks all day. And all the while, they're writing and passing legislation that will have a dramatic effect on their personal stock investments as well as America's future. 
And this is why most in Congress, they couldn't care less about their constituency until it's time for them to come up for re-election. And even that is mostly rigged. It's a, it's a joke today. People say, yeah, I wonder how many dead people voted. It may be a joke, but there are people who have been dead have been voting for years. And they've been dead for 50, 60 years. It really doesn't take a brain surgeon like Ben Carson to know that the economy's in bad shape and unemployment is up. I remember going to the to the store with my mom as a kid, very young, and she'd load two carts full of food. Two carts! And it'd be about $75. That's three or four hundred dollars today. At least. Yeah, at least. And unemployment rates are much higher than what the Fed reports, you know, because they cook the numbers. If you just do a little research and you use some basic common sense reasoning, which is a principle you actually find in the Bible, you'll know that the reported 5 to 6 un- unemployment rate in reality is closer to 40 to 50%. There are 92 million workers that are out of work. 92 million. There's 360 million citizens in the country. A third of them are out of work. A third is 33%. And not all the 360 million citizens actually can work. So if you just do a little common sense reasoning, you, you'll come to realize 5 and 6% unemployment is ridiculous. That's not even close to what it really is. And half of the 92 million workers are on food stamps. More than, well, yeah, probably about half. It's about 52 million, I think, now. It just keeps going up. Do you know the, the United States spent... Over a billion dollars on food stamps alone last year. A billion dollars. It's just remarkable. So there are things we see that James told us about that are happening today. <coughs> there are people being persecuted that are did the right thing, and they're being put in jail over it. That's what James said. What other signs does the Bible give to us? 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. He said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Boy, there's a big one. Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Do we see any of this happening today? Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And, and, And what Paul is talking about primarily here is those who profess to be religious in the church. And essentially what he's saying is there's not much of a difference between the world and the church. Because don't you find those things in the world? 
you know since 2001, at least 14 countries, I think it's more today, have fully legalized homosexual marriage? Argentina, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Iceland, Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, Spain, South America, Sweden, New Zealand, Uruguay, France, some parts of Mexico, America. And there are more countries being added to this list. I mean, all the time. It's a big push by the United Nations. There are currently 110 million cases of sexually transmitted diseases with 20 million new cases every year in America alone. Million! What's that tell you? There's a whole lot of sinning going on, isn't there? Notice these headlines. These headlines show the the times that we live in. And I'm just going to read you the headlines. Man kills four-year-old son, claims he was the Antichrist. Really? California community legalizes adultery. Well, there was the next step, isn't it? Mom says God told her to murder her sons. Sons kill mom, dismember her after seeing it done on television. Four-year-old girl is suspect in killing. Four-year-old girl. Four-year-old girl. Unbelievable. Man strangles teen then posts ad for love. Girl raped on a busy street. Human cells used to make paralyzed rats walk. Minister says God doesn't exist. He's a minister. And he says, God doesn't exist. Gay Bishop says he is the symbol of hope for homosexuals. Nuclear strike threat grows due to Iran deal. Presbyterians. Jesus is true, but not necessary for salvation. Shot forced on newborn over parents' objections. I like this one. Sin losing its grip on Americans. Really? How so? Bishop claims Jesus wouldn't care about gay clergy. <laughs> Psychiatric Association debates lifting taboo against pedophilia. And it just goes on and on and on and on. You don't have to search very hard. Hosea 4 and verse 3 says... Therefore, therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Hosea is a very interesting book. I encourage you to read it. During the last few years, we've seen a uh, We've seen fish, birds, other animals around the world dying in huge numbers. Have you noticed that? Since 2010, millions of fish have been turning up dead in lakes, rivers, and the sea with this deadly red tide, partly to blame, and also you know, the recent radiation from uh, Fukushima, that nuclear accident over there in Japan. It's spreading through the ocean, heading towards the west coast. Birds have been dropping dead out of the sky. Just drop dead. Hundreds and hundreds of them. Dead. We're seeing some uh, 
Other unusual animal deaths all around the world, including bees and bats, they're dying by the millions. What's going on? Honeybees, that's a crisis. Evidence shows there's been a dramatic increase in die-offs up to 50%, and that creates a worry over food supply. Because let me tell you, if the bees disappear, we disappear. In America in 2010, a record was set for the number of federal disaster declarations given over a year. That number was 81. That was five years ago. In 2011, that number was broken again. 99 disaster declarations were given. It costed over $32 billion. In 2012, produced another year of record-breaking disasters. In fact... Dr. Robert Hartwig stated, the number of U.S. disaster declarations has been trending sharply upward, particularly over the past 15 years. An estimated 32.4 million people worldwide were displaced due to natural disasters. It's remarkable. Big earthquakes doubled in 2014 compared to each year since 1979. They doubled that. So if you take from 1979 to 2013, that total, 2014 doubled it. A series of uh, massive quakes within two days in 2012 prompted an earthquake expert to suggest that the earth is cracking up. That's scary, isn't it? As of June 2015, this year, there were around 2,700 earthquakes happening a month. What about the change in the weather patterns? Have you seen that in the last 15 to 20 years? It's not the same as when I grew up. Something's different. And I haven't even touched on all the wars and rumors of wars across our planet. Do you know that there are over 40 conflicts raging around the world today? The wars, the world is at war, just as Jesus warned us. Let's go back to the Savior as they sat on the, on the mount. <clears throat> Christ continued speaking to the disciples, pointing out the condition of the world at His, His coming. Matthew 24, verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. They didn't know anything was going on until the flood. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Much has been written and and preached about a thousand year reign of peace when Jesus returns, but Christ doesn't speak about that. A thousand years of which all are to prepare for eternity. You can't find that in the Bible. He says that as it was in Noah's day, so will it be when the Son of Man comes again. How was it in Noah's day? Genesis 6 and verse 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Friends, what was it the wife of Billy Graham said? 
If God doesn't come soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a pretty good statement. But it was because of their wickedness that they were destroyed. And today the world's following the same way. The transgressors of God's law are filling the earth with wickedness. In the prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction, Matthew 24, between verses 12 to 14, Christ said, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Before the fall of Jerusalem, Paul declared that the gospel was preached to every creature that's under heaven. That's what he said. This must happen again, you see, before the coming of Jesus. The everlasting gospel is to be preached, as Revelation 14 says, to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people. God hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world. Acts 17.31 He's appointed a day. Christ tells us when that day shall be ushered in. He doesn't say that all the world will be converted, but that the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached to all the world. Sometimes we get too tied into results, don't we? And that affects just preaching the word. We need to just preach the word and let God take care of the rest. Amen. By giving the gospel to the world, it is in our power to hasten the return of Jesus. You can read about that in 2 Peter 3. We can hasten his coming. There is another sign of the soon coming of Jesus that many overlook today, but it is blinding the eyes is not blinding the eyes of those who have spiritual discernment. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul says in verses 2 and 3, he says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. There are multitudes of people who see the signs that, that, that we've seen And they are perplexed as to their meaning. They approach the professed men of God with their concerns and with their questions, seeking an answer to these questions and about these signs. And what's the response that they receive from these people? Jeremiah declares that these false prophets and ministers cry, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. In Revelation 3 and verse 3, Jesus said, If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. That's a scary thought, isn't it? One day you open the door and he's there. And then what are you going to say? The second, second coming of Christ will shock and surprise these false teachers they're saying peace and safety and just like the priests and teachers before the fall of Jerusalem they look for the church to have earthly prosperity and glory you know it's not a coincidence that you have these these supposed ministers of God out there preaching this prosperity gospel 
This is all part of Satan's plan. It's a part of this thousand years of peace and prosperity. The signs of the times they interpret as the storm before the calm. After all, the temple must be rebuilt before the Lord returns to keep His promise He made to the Jews, right? They are His chosen people, aren't they? But what does the Word of God declare to be the truth? 1 Thessalonians 5.3, we just read. Sudden destruction come upon them. Upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Upon all who make this world their home. The day of God will come totally unexpectedly. As Jesus said, it comes to them as a prowling thief. Great Controversy, page 38. The world is no more ready to credit the message for this time than were the Jews to receive the Savior's warning concerning Jerusalem. Come when it may, the day of God will come unawares to the ungodly. When life is going on in its unvarying round, when men are absorbed in pleasure, in business, in traffic, in money-making, when religious leaders are magnifying the world's progress and enlightenment, and the people are lulled in a fall... By the way, you know, the theory of evolution, <laughs> based on that theory, is that everything progresses to a better state. So these ministers are telling the people everything's getting better and better and better. Are they following the Bible? The Bible says everything's getting worse and worse and worse. Are they really ministers of God? You know, the Pope, he comes out and he says, oh yeah, well, I believe in evolution. Theistic evolution. Incredible. And there are Adventist schools today that teach that. Incredible. She says, the people are lulled in a false security. Then as the midnight thief steals within the unguarded dwelling, so shall sudden destruction come upon the careless and ungodly, and they shall not escape. If you got God on your trail, friends, you are not going to escape. After he had finished giving the signs of his coming, Christ said in Luke 21, 31, he said, when ye shall... When ye see these signs come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. And Mark thirteen thirty three said, Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. God has always given men warning of His judgments. He always has. He's a just God. He's a fair God. He's given warnings. Those who had faith in His message for their time, those who ex- acted out their faith, in obedience to His commandments, escaped the judgments that fell upon the disobedient and the unbelieving. They entered the ark, didn't they? Lot left Sodom. Right? What are we going to do? In Genesis 7 and verse 1, the word came to Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me. Noah obeyed and he was saved, wasn't he? Like I said, with Lot, Genesis 19.14. Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. Did Lot hang around? No. Well, he tarried a bit, didn't he? (laughs) 
but then he was gone. Today we're given warning of Christ's second coming and of the destruction to fall upon the world. Those who heed the warning will be saved. Luke 12, 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord when He cometh shall find watching. But those who watch for the Lord's coming are not waiting around doing nothing. Right? Some people say occupy, occupy, and they take that to mean just go about as the world does and do things like the world does. <coughs> Desire of Ages, page 634. I'll wrap it up here. Those who are watching for the Lord are purifying their souls by obedience to the truth. Who, who is? Those who are watching for the Lord. What are they doing? Purifying their souls. How do you do that? You obey the truth. With vigilant watching, they combine earnest working because they know that the Lord is at the door. Their zeal is quickened to cooperate with the divine intelligences and work working for the salvation of souls. These are the faithful and wise servants who give to the Lord's household their portion of meat in due season, Luke 12, 42. They are declaring the truth that is now specially applicable. As Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Moses each declared the truth for his time, so will Christ's servants now give the special warning for their generation. That's our present truth. We live in a time when Jesus is going to be coming back. I think most every prophet before would trade places with us today to live in these times. But Jesus also talked of another class of people at the end of Matthew 24. Verse 48. He says, But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is it that the evil servant says in his heart? My Lord delayeth his coming, so I can do whatever I want. Isn't that kind of like what we as humans do? We put things off. Oh, he's not going to come. It, it, you begin to understand why Jesus didn't say, you know, I'm going to be coming back in December 25th, 2015. Because what would we as human beings do? We wait to, we'll wait till, you know, well, it's December 20th. We better get our house in order. Right? I want you to notice Jesus' words here. He, he didn't say that Christ will not come, the servant. He didn't say, well, Jesus isn't coming back. He doesn't ridicule the idea of, of His second coming. But in His heart and by His actions and His words even, He declares that the Lord's coming is delayed. He places doubts, you see, in the minds of others about the Lord's coming. His influence leads people to be presumptuous. And they carelessly delay to prepare for that great event. Well, friends, everything in the world is in commotion. The signs of the times are menacing. And make no mistake, friends, the Spirit of God is withdrawing from the earth. I mean, 
calamity follows calamity. We've seen the earthquakes, the fires, fire in the West. It's been going on for how long now? Murders, perversity of every kind. Where's our security? I mean, even if you stand up for what the law of the land is, they will throw you in jail like they did Kim Davis. We live in a lawless society. And isn't that just like the spirit of Antichrist? To profess to follow laws, but they don't really follow laws? Few people today believe we have, have a hell to shun and a heaven to win. Luke 21, verse 34. Take heed to yourselves, Jesus said, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Friends, do you recognize any of these signs in our world today? I just touched on them, really. Can you see that Jesus' coming is very soon? Time is running out, isn't it? Now is the time to know Jesus and accept His invitation for tomorrow may be too late. Think about this. Do you accept the gift of salvation from Jesus? Is it your decision to be reborn by the Holy Spirit and begin a new life with Him? I hope that it is. And if it is, let's pray together now. Our Father in Heaven, we know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. So we confess our sins to You now. We pray that You will forgive us for our sins against You and others and help us to make restitution if we can. And Father, we accept Your gift of salvation. And we want a new godly life right now. We can't change the past, Father. You can change us right now, though. So we give You our wills. We ask that You give us a new heart and the power to be an overcomer. And Father, above all, we pray that You will help us to be ready for the return of Your Son, Jesus. And Father, we thank You for hearing this prayer. Because we ask it in His name.